Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered. We left off with Jesus' crucifixion, and today I'd like to explore his resurrection. But before I do, I'd like to read a statement to you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in Scripture, and one might add, in all of human history. Indeed, in addressing the church in Corinth, St. Paul writes, But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then empty is our preaching, empty too your faith. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 14. And I'll add to that. Without the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ, our faith, no matter how authentic, how deeply felt, or how worthily expressed, is utterly worthless. And if that's the case, then Christianity itself is based on a lie, on nothing more than a myth. And if so, we should have the moral and spiritual courage to look elsewhere for truth. So I'd like to build this lesson with that statement in mind. And I'd like to turn over to the Gospel according to John and pick up at the very end, right when Jesus dies on the cross, by way of transition into the resurrection. So I'm reading to you from John 19, beginning at verse 28. Now later, knowing that all was now completed and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Or perhaps better, it is accomplished. That is, the purpose for which Jesus came to this earth, the purpose for which in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. The purpose for doing that was our redemption. And with Jesus' last breath on the cross, our redemption was complete, finished, accomplished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now the man who saw it, that is John, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, 
and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We read that in Exodus 12, verse 46, speaking of the Passover lamb. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's Zechariah 12, at verse 10. Now later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. While taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So we have great detail here on the burial of Jesus, preparing his body for burial. His body would have been taken from the cross and prepared first by washing it, cleansing it of all blood and grime and dirt. And then, with about 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh in a mixture much like Crisco cooking oil, his left hand would be anointed, smeared with that material, a thick coat of it. And then, with strips of linen three to four inches wide, they would begin wrapping his thumb. And then, once wrapped a few times, index finger, middle finger, ring finger, little finger, all the way up to the wrist. Then, they would put more aloe and myrrh on top of that, and then wrap the hand up again until it looked like a boxing glove. Then, they would work their way up his arm, anointing, wrapping, anointing, wrapping. And then the right hand and right arm, then the left foot and the left leg, the right foot and the right leg, and then finally put the legs together and the arms at his side, and they would anoint the entire body and then begin wrapping the body, much as wrapping a mummy. In fact, by the time they finished, Jesus would have looked like the Michelin Man. But then, in the end, finally, they anoint his head and face, and they wrapped it in a single cloth and then placed him in the tomb. The tomb was then sealed, and that's where Jesus would stay for one year. It wasn't a place for permanent burial. It was a place for the decomposition of the body. So during that one-year period, the family, the women, Mary, and others, would come to the tomb to pray, and they would periodically re-anoint the body and perhaps re-wrap in portions until the body decayed 
and all the body fluids would be absorbed into the linen, and the only thing left would be bones. At that point, after one year, the bones would be removed and placed in an ossuary, that is, a limestone box that would stay in the tomb. So in a family tomb, you might have two, three, four, five generations of that family buried in the tomb, all of them in ossuaries, in niches on the wall. So that was the burial practice. That's how it was done. Now, we read in chapter 20 of John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, before sunrise, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So Mary Magdalene went to pray and to watch over the body, but the stone, a big stone, was already removed. She looked into the tomb, and there was no body. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, again, that would be our Apostle John, and out of breath, she said, oh, oh, they've, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. Someone stole his body. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. Now, John is writing this in the Gospel according to John, and he says, but the other disciple, that is me, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I beat him there. <laughs> he bent over. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there on the floor, the three to four inch strips, just a big pile of them lying there on the floor, but he didn't go in. So he looked in and he saw the strips of linen. The Greek word is blepo, and it's a simple observation of fact. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, I, John, got there first to recall, he arrived at the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Now the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So Peter looked, out, looked in, and he saw, he critically examined, not blepo, thoreo. He critically examined. And finally, the other disciple, John, who, by the way, had reached the tomb first, <laughs> also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw horeo, that is, full comprehension. Across this story, beginning in chapter 20 up to where we are now at verse 9, there's progressive understanding in the scene, from one scene to another to another. They still do not understand, however, from Scripture, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They knew he had been raised, but they didn't yet connect the dots with Scripture. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They were astounded. They went back to their homes, but Mary, Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb 
And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And she, through her tears, said, They've taken my Lord away, and, and I don't know where they've put him. Someone took his body. With this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. Perhaps it's just beginning to dawn. Perhaps his face is shadowed. Or perhaps in his resurrected body, she didn't recognize him. There was something different about him. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Well, thinking he was the gardener, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I'll get him. And then Jesus said to her, and I picture him stepping from the shadows into the light, the now rising sun. And he said to her, Mary. Now, maybe it was something about the tone of voice. Maybe it was uh, a gesture that he made. But she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She reached for him to, to embrace him. And Jesus said, please do not hold on to me. I've not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't, don't cling to me, please, but go and tell them. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things. They're dumbfounded. Peter and John were there. They saw and comprehended that Jesus was not there in the tomb, that he had risen. Again, they hadn't connected the dots with Scripture. They went back and told the others. Now Mary Magdalene comes and says, I saw him. I talked with him. Well, can you imagine that day, the discussions that went on among the disciples? Some believed it. Some doubted but on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, so they were locked in the room. I believe it's the very same room where they celebrated Passover, perhaps in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The doors were locked. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. He just appears in the room with the doors locked. Poof! There he is. Peace be with you. Now imagine, imagine the men in the room, they're afraid because Jesus has just been crucified, and they're looking for the officials, they're looking for the others who ran away. And all of a sudden, as they're talking, they're in a circle, they're talking intently, and Jesus appears in the room, standing behind them, 
just listening. <laughs> and then he says, peace be with you. They must have jumped 12 inches off the ground. After this, he said, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They are astounded, and there he is. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to see a little bit later that the Holy Spirit arrives on the Jewish feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, AD 32, in a very public way. And at that moment, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the church is born as a covenant community under grace. This is a private gift given to his disciples. A private gift that, as we'll see, they need to fully understand the scriptures, to connect the dots, if you will. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus appeared in that room. So when he arrived, the other disciples said, We have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, Yeah, right. No, we have. He was right here. But Thomas said, Unless... I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. Show me the proof. I, I can't, this is too far-fetched. Well, a week later, his disciples were there in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again. The doors are locked, they're all together. Suddenly, poof, there he is. Peace be with you. Scared them again. Everyone jumped. And he said to Thomas, now can you imagine Thomas, his jaw on the ground. Jesus said to Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. He takes Thomas's hand and says, put your finger here in my hands, the hole in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, as you're listening to this podcast, when we finish, go to your computer and Google Caravaggio Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Caravaggio's portrait of this scene is absolutely stunning and brilliant. And the look on Thomas's face and on the faces of Peter and John looking on, it's just priceless. Have a look at that painting. Thomas replied, Not 
my Lord and my God. No, my Lord and my God. Oh my God, you're here. And if you're here, you are my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That will be you and me. I haven't looked upon the face of Christ. I hope one day that I shall, when I step out of this world into his presence. We haven't seen him, but we believe. Now, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded here in this book, the Gospel according to John, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or elsewhere. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus has been resurrected, He's appeared to Mary Magdalene. He's appeared to the disciples. And we learn from Paul that he appeared first to Peter. Now that's intriguing. It was Peter who denied the Lord three times, who rushed off and collapsed into bushes, weeping bitterly. Peter, we haven't heard a word from Peter. He rushed to the tomb with John. He looked in. He comprehended, but he has not yet said a word. And I wonder, when Jesus appeared in that upper room with the doors locked, Peter was certainly there, but he didn't say anything. Jesus looked at him. Perhaps Peter looked away, ashamed, That's one loose end we have to deal with, with Peter. And we'll take a look at Peter and what Jesus does with him in our next podcast on Wednesday. Thank you, friends, for being with me. And I just love this, uh, this particular episode. And let me repeat once again the statement that I made at the beginning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in Scripture and indeed in all of human history. In addressing the church in Corinth, St. Paul writes, But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then empty is your preach our preaching and empty to your faith. Indeed, Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians that he appeared first to Peter, then to the other apostles, and at one point to more than 500 people at the very same time. And when Peter writes 2 Peter, his final epistle, his farewell epistle, he says, we didn't make this stuff up. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. Well, the eyewitness generation is long gone, but we have their report. 
and we can trust it. Because without the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ, our faith, no matter how authentic, how deeply felt, or how worthily expressed, is worthless. Because without the resurrection, we are still in our sin. So let me close there. And we'll come back and take a look at Peter. Thank you for being here with me. Blessings to all of you. Bye-bye now.